That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, hello, happy Friday, and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Well, it's been another crazy week with news breaking on several fronts at once, which I was reminded of yesterday, running into an editor friend on the street who told me she had assigned several reporters to cover the Munich Security Conference, but all anybody wanted to talk about was Fannie Willis on the witness stand in Atlanta. (laughs) So... So to recap, this is going to be remembered as the week when, for the first time ever, the House impeached a sitting cabinet secretary, when, for the first time ever, a former president was ordered to appear in a courtroom to face criminal charges, when Democrats flipped a key congressional seat on Long Island, when Republicans killed a strong border protection bill they wrote themselves, and when the main source for the Republican efforts to impeach Joe Biden was arrested for lying to the FBI. Whoa, so much to talk about and so little time, but let's try to make some sense of it all with today's panel. Joining us again, welcome back to Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Hello, Sabrina. Good morning, Bill. Gabe DiBenedetti, back with us again, national correspondent for New York Magazine. Hi, Gabe. Morning, Bill. And making her debut appearance, we always love new guests on the uh, roundtable, Kate Riga covers Congress and courts for Talking Points Memo, and she's also co-host of the Josh Marshall podcast. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Hello, Bill. Okay, so it was a a case of dueling courtrooms yesterday, split-screen courtrooms on national television, Uh, Let's start, Gabe, with the one in New York City, where Trump was given a trial date for March 25. Uh, Before we get into any of the merits of the case, Gabe, this is an historic event, what happened yesterday. Yeah, well, we finally got the uh, trial date for for Trump's first criminal trial. It's going to be the first time a former president is on criminal trial. Um, and one of the reasons that this is so important is is not necessarily the merits of this case itself, because this is not really the one that a lot of people are focusing on. And again, we can get into the substance of this one itself, but it really does set in motion or appear to set in motion. There's a big asterisk there. Um, what's going to be a very busy trial schedule for the former president as he, you know, mounts his reelection campaign, which is, you know, I don't know how many times we're going to say this. We said it all over the last decade, every other second, but it's unprecedented. Um, you know, he is going to be in and out of courtrooms constantly, and it looks like that's going to start. Um, now, uh, next month. Uh, so it seems entirely likely that this spring and summer are going to be very busy on the legal front. Now, there's obviously a lot of appeals, a lot of questions about superseding cases, which goes when. Um, but this is, again, the first time we have a former president on criminal trial. Uh, and this is going to be happening in New York starting next month. Um, so, you know, whereas the president, the former president will obviously would prefer you know, to be finishing up his primary race, which doesn't seem like much of a contest at this point, starting to really go on the offensive against Biden. 
he's instead going to have to be in a courtroom as a defendant. Yeah. How do you see that, Sabrina, affecting this campaign? I mean, his lawyers made the point yesterday, this is just the time when he'll be, as Gabe just mentioned, uh, shifting into general election mode. But he's going to have to be in that courtroom every day during the day. Nikki Haley yesterday said that this kind of chaos in the courtroom is going to sink Republicans in November. What impact do you see it? Well, I think that in many ways for the Trump campaign, uh, the courtroom is the campaign trail now. (laughs) I mean, they obviously have put at the center of the former president's efforts to return to the White House uh, these grievances that he has uh, over the many legal challenges and criminal trials that he uh, is and will be facing uh, as, as you know, sort of this idea that the system is out to get him when, of course, um, you know, as we know, these are all very serious indictments that were based on, you know, a, a great amount of evidence uh, uncovered by prosecutors. But, uh, you know, we, we know that Trump has always tried to discredit institutions um, and, and campaigned on this idea of, you know, a, a so-called deep state. And, and so I think that's very much what you're going to see uh, when it comes to messaging, again, despite everything that we know about the evidence against him um, in any one of these cases, this one, of course, pertains to the hush money payments that were made to um, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, um, two uh, women who had alleged extramarital, that Trump had extramarital affairs with them. Um, you know, but but I, I think obviously the timing of this still, even if they want the Trump campaign wants to you know, make it out to be more political and use it to galvanize supporters. It does just mean that it's going to put him inside the court uh, room at a time that, you know, he would otherwise be campaigning, fundraising. Um, I mean, they'll try to fundraise off of these, uh, I think, uh, cases. But but yes, this is absolutely something that will be a distraction, uh, no matter how mm-hmm. much they try to use it as an effort to galvanize his supporters. Well, without getting into all the gory details, Kate, um, it, I think we do have to act, recognize that once this case starts, it's going to be pretty sleazy stuff, right? I mean, this is all about um, paying hush money to por- a porn star, Stormy Daniels, and that's what's going to be in the news uh, every day. Um, the last thing Trump would want to be talking about. Exactly. And I know that people think probably the least of this case of the big felony cases because it is kind of tawdry and salacious. You know, it lacks the weight of the January 6th case, which was initially expected to go first. But, you know, with all these cases, timing nearly Trump's substance. Uh, You know, January 6th is frozen while we wait on the Supreme Court. The documents case is being slow walked by the Trump judge Cannon. Now the Georgia case is knotted up, uh, you know, in questions (laughs) over Willis's relationship. So, you know, it it might kind of seem the most tabloidy of all of them. But, you know, this was a big win for Bragg yesterday. He, you know, the judge decided the case is solid enough to proceed. Um, Trump kind of candidly told reporters, we want delays, obviously. Um, but the judge got pretty tired of Trump's lawyers' attempts to to shoehorn in delays pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, Trump will face at least one jury before Election Day. And as you say, you know, it's salacious. Uh, it, it does 
you know, evangelicals have seemed to kind of make their peace with the fact that Trump is a multiple times divorced, kind of uh, not usually the the type of man that they uh, they like to kind of get behind. But um, and you have Bragg kind of trying to elevate this case and framing it as election interference, um, I think, to kind of give it a little bit of gravitas. But yeah, I mean, there there's no way to really spin this as a, a pure you know, positive for Trump. And, uh, you know, this trial is going forward. The judge said it should run for about six weeks, which also, you know, leaves plenty of time for the January 6th case, unless the Supreme Court kind of really drags out this immunity piece. Right. Uh, By the way, before we move on, I just wanted to uh, point out one thing that I think the New York Times was quick to report. Donald Trump walked out of the courtroom yesterday and said, this is terrible. I was supposed to be doing all kinds of things in South Carolina today. And instead, I had to be here in the courtroom which was simply not true. He did not have to be in the courtroom yesterday, and the New York Times checked, and there were no events at all scheduled in South Carolina yesterday. (laughs) He was there by choice. So in Atlanta, it was a pretty lively scene for sure, a defiant Fannie Willis taking the stand and saying, don't try to put me on trial. This is all about Donald Trump. Here she is. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. So, uh, Gabe, it may not be fair, but she is, uh, She's the judge has said, we've got to look at this situation. Uh, fair or not fair, it doesn't look good. We well, agree to that. Sure. I mean, if we're just going to talk about the politics of this all, which I think is probably appropriate because this is at this point totally about politics. um, It's it's like we've been saying and certainly like Kate just said, you know, one of the one of the things that seems certain is that the Trump uh, forces, Trump lawyers in in particular, are very eager to not these cases up. And in this case, you know, the, the question of whether the the prosecutor and the lawyer had an an inappropriate relationship. Um, doesn't necessarily strike at the heart of the case against Trump at all, but it does seem to be really weighing down uh, the the timeline of Trump's case about his attempts to overthrow the election in Georgia, um, and that of course could have quite a big out uh, quite a big um, you know political uh, ramifications here. It, you know, Willis was quite indignant yesterday, and and that for good reason. She seemed pretty upset about the, the way that, that the court was digging into her personal life, saying, I'm not on trial here. These guys are. Um, but of course, the reality is that if she is disqualified from the case, then there's a massive question mark about how this one goes forward, because it will be reassigned. And we're not sure what the timeline of that is. But I want to go back for a second to a, a point that you just made, where Trump said, you know, I want to be in South Carolina and said, I'm doing this. But he didn't have to be in South Carolina. That's because he does perceive that there is some political gain to be had by playing a victim, by saying that he is being prosecuted by and persecuted by the DOJ, by Biden's DOJ and by, you know, the, the, the deep state. So he does see some political gain here. And he's, you know, as we know, based on years of experience now, the thing that he wants is to be in the headlines at all time. Obviously, being in criminal or civil peril is not what he wants. But at the same time, he knows where the cameras are going to be. And in this case, this is now a total circus uh, in Atlanta. And obviously, that is that is part of the design of the people who are going after Willis, who is someone who has made no, you know, made no bones about her attempts to or her interest in really prosecuting Trump hard. Right. But Sabrina, it wasn't so long ago that most of us thought 
that the Atlantic case was the strongest of all the cases and the most most likely the one that would be decided first uh, and go against Donald Trump. Does all of this Fannie Willis stuff um, undermine that and weaken the case, jeopardize the case against Trump? Well, I think for now it's a distraction from the charges against Trump. It's hard to say what the actual long-term impact will be because at the end of the day, nothing that happened even if it was quite an explosive um, sh- back and forth that we saw uh, with uh, Fannie Willis taking the stand, it, none of it actually undercut the facts of the case against Trump, against Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and the other Trump allies who have been accused um, of trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election and uh, the abundance of evidence that has supported. Uh, those charges and those allegations. So I think it was more that the conversation for now has been shifted away uh, from from those allegations. But that, again, like we just talked about how there is this trial date that has been set for the hush money criminal case. Um, and then there are going to be uh, the other investigations um, Again, that Trump has and, and legal challenges that he is facing um, in several other cases. So I think I think that's all going to continue. I think with respect to this uh, particular case, obviously it's the hope of Trump's attorneys that th- that if they can really demonstrate that there was some uh, kind of abuse of power here or abuse of the office, that you know that could override in some way. Um, you know, the case against Trump himself, but it's it's just, I think it's just too soon to say um, that it would have that kind of impact, especially when you think about, again, um, just how, ex- you know, the, the, the facts of the Georgia election subversion case, um, again, where it's not just Trump, it's also 14 of his allies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we'll see, but, but, you know, I, yeah, I think you could at least say that for now, it's absolutely a distraction from the very serious charges against uh, the former president. Yeah, and we'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, so let's jump up to New York 3, where Tom Swosey will be coming back to occupy a seat that he did before, the seat vacated uh, when the House uh, tossed uh, George Santos out of office. Um, this is a big win for Democrats and Kate uh, you're covering Congress. This gets Mike Johnson down to a pretty slim majority in the House, right? It does, yeah. Um, and that's particularly important because we're coming up on a period where Johnson is going to be tasked with doing the most kind of serious legislating that he's had to do. And, you know, this is related to at the end of April, sequestration kicks in, you know, kind of across the board, budgetary cuts, a a leftover um, mechanism from the debt ceiling deal that Biden made with McCarthy, which means that, you know, Congress is not going to be able to just keep passing continuing resolutions forever. Um, They're going to have to actually pass appropriations bills. And, you know, from what we've seen of Johnson's kind of brief tenure. um, And I think some of this has to do with his lack of experience in the role. And some of it has to do with this is a really difficult task to kind of make this current 
House Republican conference um, pass legislation at all when you've got this kind of uh, right wing contingent that really doesn't want to pass anything that has any Democratic cooperation at all. Um, you know, he's facing that and now he's doing it with even less breathing room than he had before. And as we saw with the margin he's working with now, they're struggling to even get through the, you know, the pure kind of red meat partisan, uh, you know, type of bills that that have pretty wide support um, from the conference. So it, it just makes his life a, a lot more difficult and gives Democrats a, a little spark of optimism to kind of look towards, um, especially after what was kind of a, you know, a rough week with with the her report and the kind of reinflaming of the Biden age problems and all of that. Right. In In fact, I saw one report that if the impeachment vote on Mayorkas had happened a couple of days later, where Tom Spuozzi was actually sworn in, they would not have been able to impeach Mayorkas for the second time because they, <laughs> yeah. they wouldn't have enough. Of, on the point of uh, of uh, Johnson as uh, his performance as speaker so far, Pete Aguilar uh, in the Democratic leadership this week made the point of. Um, on the job training, which has always been a big issue for Democrats. Well, Democrats also believe in on the job training. Um, and that's clearly, you know, where Speaker Johnson is um, right now. Um, but you have to be able to do two things at once. Nancy Pelosi frequently did 12 things. Uh, I understand doing two is, is hard for him. Um, but that's what the job entails. <laughs> that's what the job entails. So my question to you, Gabe, as a covering New York, I don't know whether you live on Long Island or not. Why were... Why were the media reporting that this was going to be a neck and neck race, that this the Republicans were going to prove once again that they're the strongest force in Long Island? It wasn't even close. That's a good question. There are a number of dynamics here that I think deserve examination. One is that Long Island, where, where I don't live, but, but I do know politically, um, has you know really been growing. Uh, more and more Republican in recent cycles. You know, this was the, the George Santos seat, which, of course, you know, is not historically a Republican seat, but had been getting redder and redder. And there has been this belief that there had been this belief in a lot of the coverage that by forcing Swazi to talk about the border and immigration in particular, um, that the Republican candidate, Mazi Pillow, had really put him on the back foot and forced him to talk on, you know, about Republican issues. This is this is the way that a lot of Republicans framed it. Um, and there was this belief that, you know, because the district was drifting away and because Biden drifting away from Democrats and because Biden is quite um, unpopular there, that this would really be difficult for Swazi, even though he is a former congressman um, from the area. That said, you know, there were also a few dynamics that went undercovered. One is that whenever, historically speaking, whenever a, a, a seat is vacated because of a scandal, um, the party... Uh, who who was scandalized, uh, so to speak, usually pays a penalty. And that was uh -huh, the case here. Uh -huh. um, and, and beyond that, you know, there was a big storm during Election Day, which is when a lot of Republicans tend to vote in the area. So that may have depressed turnout a little bit. But none of that is to detract from the fact that Swazi was able to win. And a big part of that was because it wasn't given a lot of attention, but he did campaign on and run ads on the idea that Republicans in full control, you know, would uh, enact a nationwide abortion ban. This issue continues to be a completely 
underappreciated uh, animating factor in race after race, and it's why Democrats in many cases have overperformed uh, ever since the fall of Roe v. Wade, um, which is well over a year now. And it's also, you know, we, we're, we're not talking about the presidential election today, but it's why Democrats, some Democrats, some, uh, feel better than you might think about the state of politics overall in terms of where voters are. Because in a race like this, where you would think a lot of the dynamics are pointing toward a long-term Republican shift, uh, the Democrat was able to win by a margin that, you know, looks pretty healthy. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, I'd like your take on that, Sabrina, too. I mean, as, as Gabe pointed out, Swazi, Swazi, I used to call him Swazi, Swazi, whatever, he went directly at the abortion issue, right, uh, holding Democrats, uh, Republicans responsible. And he also went directly at the border issue, um, taking Republicans on the number one issue that they wanted to stress and said, hey, dudes, you know, you had a bill, the strongest bill ever. I would have voted for it. Biden was going to sign it. And yet you killed it. So does this race have significance, do you believe? Is it sort of a roadmap for Democrats in 2024? I think it absolutely could serve as an example of how Democrats can, in fact, defend themselves on the issue of immigration. I mean, I'm always a little reluctant um, to, to draw too many national implications from you know, one race. But I, look, this is a you know, this was a campaign that was very much dominated by Republican attacks on on the border issue. Um, I believe that Republicans spent more than eight million dollars on campaign ads in this race, uh, not all of which were on immigration, but they, that was certainly what dominated. And you know, look, I mean, again, we, uh, there you had the Republican hold rallies, you know, near this makeshift tent city in Queens, housing migrants. So it's, it's that, you know, they were trying to seize on what has been a hot button issue um, once again, uh, you know, in, in a presidential election year in a, you know, we're, this is also a city where the mayor has criticized the Biden administration on border security. Um, and of course, we know that the president has a low approval rating over his handling of the issue. So, you know, with all that being said, you, you know, you, you had, I think a roadmap for how Democrats can defend themselves and, and, and yes, successfully tack to the middle. Um, you know, the, I think the message you heard from, so it is Swazi or Swazi. I'm sorry. I'm just going to, I've also struggled with this. I'm, ta I'm taking Gabe's uh, pronunciation. Swazi. Swazi. Thank you. That's, I was like, I was also like, in the, I was saying it like you, Bill. And now Gabe, thank you for the important pronunciation lesson. He's the New Yorker here on the panel. Which is very, yes, the New Yorker has spoken. Um, but you know, the majority needs to be security pointed to the congressional deal. And um, that was really, that was scuttled by Trump and the hard right. And I, I think that you do see that Biden himself has actually done some of that. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy. And just real quickly, I'll say that just a couple weeks ago, President Biden said that he would shut down the border if Congress gave him the authority to do so. I mean, it, uh, you know, when I first saw that headline, I thought like it was a mistake that, that, you know, like, you know, I was like, I, you know, I was like oh, did they mean Trump? But then I, I read through it and I was like, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. Because I think Democrats do understand that they, they, they do have to acknowledge that there is a, um, you know, an, an influx at the border, that it is, it is a political issue, um, not just a policy issue. And, you know, there there is a balance you can strike in talking about uh, securing the border, 
and proposing uh, measures to secure the border without necessarily um, cracking down too harshly on asylum laws, although I do think that's still going to be a balance that they have to strike both from a humanitarian standpoint and as a political matter for because of the you know where they're where the democratic base is but but this race certainly served as like I, I think an example of how they can get it right and something that I do think you are already you've already been seeing President Biden in some ways um, kind of set a tone from the top right uh, which raises a question about whether or not we're ever going to see uh, a border bill or Ukraine aid as well, which we'll get into right after a quick break here on the uh, Bill Press pod. Uh, hang in there with our panelists, Sabrina Siddiqui, Gabe Benedetti, and Kate Riga, and we'll be right back. And today's roundtable on the Bill Press pod brought to you by the good men and women of the Smart Union. Uh, they, they got together a few years back the sheet metal workers, air air um, employees, rail and transportation employees, and came together as the Smart Union, now under their general president, Michael Coldman. They may not be one of America's biggest unions. They're over 200,000 strong, but they are one definitely one of the most diverse and the most dynamic of all America's labor unions, active, of course, in the area of sheet metal, passenger and freight rail, uh, in shipyards and NHVAC HVAC fabrication and installation. We salute the members of the Smart Union and thank them for their longtime support of Progressive Talk Radio and especially of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back on this Friday, February 16, with our panelists here on today's Reporters Roundtable. Kate Riga joining us. She covers Congress and the courts for Talking Points Memo, Gabe DiBenedetti, national correspondent for New York Magazine, and Sabrina Siddiqui, a White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal. So what about it, Kate? Will there be uh, a border bill? Will there be uh, Ukraine support for Ukraine and Israel? if and when Congress ever gets back from its recess. 
Yeah. So there, it felt to me that there was this window after the Senate passed the foreign aid supplemental and Johnson kind of put out this, I think, widely mocked statement about how we're not going to pass foreign aid without border measures, you know, as if everyone would forget that he had just kind of rhetorically killed um, the Senate package that included uh, an unusually, uh, you know, a set of uh, policies that really kind of favor the Republican position on immigration. Um, so I thought at that moment there might be a, a chance for Democrats and Republicans who want to fund Ukraine to kind of bind together and make a real push. Um, and I know right now we have this kind of side bill being developed by you know Fitzpatrick and Bacon and some of the House Republican moderates that seems to be a, a smaller version of the Senate one with only military aid to Ukraine. But, you know, it's hard for me to see how legislation like that doesn't put Johnson in the same bind as the Senate version would. Um, we have Marjorie Taylor Greene promising to trigger the motion to vacate if he puts Ukraine aid on the floor. Um, you know, and I don't think a, a House version of that bill with significant Democratic support would really wave her off there. Um, and there's been some chatter about a motion to discharge or some other way to maybe circumvent leadership mm -hmm. and kind mm -hmm. of get it on the floor with procedural tricks. But some of the moderate Demo Republicans that you would really need to get behind that as of right now are pretty cool to the idea. Um, so kind of with all that being said, the biggest problem I see now is that it seems like it's in Johnson's best interest not to have to deal with this legislation. And he'll kind of have a built-in excuse when the House returns at the end of February because they'll have to avert that early March shutdown. And then, as I mentioned before, the sequestration threat that kicks in at the end of April. So I think that's a pressing enough threat that he could probably say, you know, we, we don't have time to do Ukraine right now. We have to do this other stuff and get away with it unless Democrats and this moderate House Republican block kind of band together and make it something he can't avoid, that he can't push to the back burner. You know, if they're talking about it all the time, then I think that creates a different issue for him. But it, it is hard for me to see how he kind of brings this legislation to the floor without endangering his job. Yeah. Can, can I just jump in for a second and say, Please. I think we yeah. it's important to talk a little bit about the terms that we're really discussing here. And I think, Kate, you're totally right. But it's important that when we talk about how, you know, Johnson can survive this moment, it's really in narrow terms, right? It's about saving his own job. It's not about the bigger politics of the moment, which are pretty terrible for him. And I think a lot of Republicans are nervous that this general sense of House Republican chaos and mismanagement um, is going to come back to bite them, whether they try and get rid of Johnson after all this or whether they don't and simply can't pass any of this stuff. You know, it's been very telling to me. Johnson keeps saying that he wants this one on one meeting with Biden um, and the White House keeps <laughs> saying something along the lines of why? What do you want to talk about? You know, <laughs> right. you need to negotiate yeah. within your own Congress, within your own uh, 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 conference before you can you know, come to us. You don't have an ask for us. So Johnson is in this difficult position, but it's pretty self-inflicted. It's because of the shape of his party. So, you know, I think the broader political and the national political sympathy is not with him on this. In terms of the internal politics of his conference, though, you're probably right that he needs to try and just say we have other things to worry about. Um, but it is a narrow concern for him and not the bigger political one that you've seen successful speakers in the past navigate it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, um, I'm sure he looks over his shoulder at Kevin McCarthy about five times a day. Um, Sabrina, maybe everybody's missing the obvious uh, easy answer here, uh, which Donald Trump came up with this week. Stop talking about giving money to Ukraine and let's just make a loan. Here's the former president. Why should you just hand it over to him 
do it as a form of a loan. I do that with athletes. They can't quite, you know, like a professional golfer who I think is very good. They don't have any money, but they have a lot of talent. Professional golfer, I play golf. I play very nice. Did you see the picture of me, the horrible picture with the stomach out to here? That was... So what I do is I'm putting up today a picture of me actually, what I actually look like hitting a ball, smashing the frickin' ball. I wouldn't say slim, but not bad. But the ball does go far. I would say it goes about nine times further than Biden can hit it nine times. Uh, Sabrina, <laughs> at, at which point we always have to remind people that the president does not drink alcohol. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was going to say, did you get all that? I don't know if I was able, able to follow um, you know, that entire train of thought. And I think mean, uh, this campaign season uh, has been... Uh, a reminder in uh, right. the rambling nature of uh, Trump's speeches. But look, we, we I mean, we've seen <laughs> Trump scuttle one agreement um, yep. with respect to the border. And it is true that the reason that Republicans um, who in the past have been hawks on Russia have shifted gears and are, and are also turning on the idea of providing more aid to Ukraine, um, you know, that is you know, the influence and impact of, of former President Trump. So, um, you know, I don't know about the loan idea. I, I think it goes without saying <laughs> that President Biden, the Biden administration is not going to be, um, you know, ch- changing its own approach. And I think it just is, um, look, this is a war that is um, coming up on its uh, second anniversary in, in, in just a matter of days. And, um you know, the, it is true that Ukraine has uh, struggled to maintain um, uh, some of the gains that it made in its, uh, you know, counteroffensive uh, against Russia last uh, last year. But at the same time, you know, they 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 truly are running out of money, and I think that you know, it's 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 not just the Biden administration. You talk to really anyone with knowledge on this conflict, and they'll tell you that. You know, the, it, losing Western support is, is is catastrophic for the Ukrainians. So, um, you know, I don't know. We we still don't know where this is going to land. But I, I don't think the answer is going to be solved through loans. Um, I think it'll probably take on, especially when, you know, the debt that I think in general, the, the kind of uh, financial recovery that Ukraine would that would be necessary for Ukraine in terms of reconstruction after the war would also be tremendous. Um, so I think, I, I, again, I don't think that this is a real policy, um, but, but it's something that we, I guess we're going to get used to as we, as we see more and more of Trump on the campaign trail and, and possibly return to office. But on uh, a more serious foreign policy note, um, kind of wrapping up here, the uh, former president did suggest this week um, that he was ready to pull the plug on NATO. Uh, if some countries, this has been a recurring theme of his, didn't pay their fair share, uh, not only pull the plug on that uh, on NATO, but encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they needed to do to go against that country and the United States, which is sit back and watch it happen, which prompted this response, Gabe, from President Biden. If an ally didn't spend enough money on defense... He would encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want, end of quote. Can you imagine a former president of the United States saying that? The whole world heard it. 
The worst thing is he means it. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. Gabe, un-American, pretty strong language, but also a pretty um, scary suggestion on Donald Trump's part, which really shook the world's leaders, at least our allies. Well, he's, I mean, if you look at the actual substance of what he's saying, it would uh, upend the the world order as we know it um, in order, you know, if he's really encouraging Russia to to attack uh, European allies, um, it's pretty clear, you know, this is not news that the former president doesn't actually understand how NATO works, or at least talks about it as if he doesn't understand it. Um, it's pretty interesting to see the current president gets so animated about this, not because that was a surprise, but we know that this is something that he cares about a lot and that he sees as a, a, a real opportunity to show the contrast, not that this is just a campaign issue. But, you know, it was interesting to me in the sort of macro sense that this was really one of these outrages on Trump's part that it's not necessarily surprising that he said this. We kind of know that he has felt this way for a long time. But to hear him say it is nonetheless shocking. And this really did break through in a way that a lot of his recent outrages on the campaign trail haven't, which does give us a sense that people are really tuning in to the reality that we are in this general election now. Um, oh. And if we are going to be talking about it in, you know, if we're going to be honest about what it means, yeah, I, I think it's very telling that you have people all around the world now zoomed in on this idea that what Trump is explicitly threatening, it sounds like, is, you know, a, a reevaluation of the entire world order. And, you know, I don't think he would shy away from that. Right. Uh, two other quick things before we uh, before we wrap up here. Uh, Kate, yesterday, um, the special prosecutor uh, assigned to investigate Hunter Biden uh, uh, announced the arrest of the lead witness in the Republican House case against President, former against President Joe Biden, uh, Alexander Smirnov, he's the guy who claimed that Biden got a five million dollar, and Hunter each, I guess, got five million dollars from Ukraine or whatever. Uh, that's been the basis of the Biden crime family charges by James Comer and Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy and others, uh, and that informant was arrested uh, for lying to the FBI. Does this? undermine or eliminate the entire uh, effort to impeach President Biden? I think it, you know, it undermines the impeachment push, given that the health of the effort, while this was still its slightly less debunked centerpiece, was already in question. You know, uh, we know Comer has taken flack from his own side due to his difficulty in digging anything up that can, you know, e can be easily whipped up into a scandal. Um, I think this is pretty embarrassing for him and for Chuck Grassley, who published the FBI file, and for mm -hmm. McCarthy, who kind of touted it as the primary pillar of the inquiry. Um, and also, you know, pretty notable from the FBI, which generally kind of steers clear of punishing human sources, uh, even if they don't think they're getting super reliable information as to not dissuade other people in potentially dangerous situations from coming forward. So I think it's pretty clear that they uh, did not enjoy the implication here that you know, they were involved um, in this. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's totally embarrassing. This is kind of how 
been how this whole Biden impeachment push has been, you know, from the beginning, from day one, when I think it was Marjorie Taylor Greene who kind of filed articles the day after inauguration. I mean, this is something House Republicans have said they wanted to do forever. They've spent months on it. Everything they keep digging up is either kind of old or debunked already or, you know, just kind of smoke and no fire. So this is just really the the crown jewel of, of that dynamic. Now, father, now further, even further debunked. Um, and finally, 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 Sabrina, this is really inside baseball, but, you know, we're all we all cover politics and love it. The former president, Donald Trump, says it's not enough that I've captured the entire Republican Party. I now want to capture the Republican National Committee. Um, Rona McDaniel, Rona Romney McDaniel is out. Um, and Donald Trump wants Michael Watley from North Carolina to be the new chair of the RNC, and his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, to be the vice chair of the RNC. We wonder, Sabrina, why he would tap Lara Romney for this job, Lara Trump, I'm sorry, for this job. Uh, and here's why. Here she is yesterday. If I am elected to this position, I can assure you every single penny will go to the number one and the only job of the RNC. That is electing Donald J. Trump as president of the United States. No money to anybody else, Sabrina. Every penny goes to my father-in-law. Well, yeah, I mean, if the RNC was not already controlled by uh, former President Trump, I think, uh, it, you know, this would just take it up another notch um and it's it's you kind of you kind of have to take a moment for um um gosh now i almost forgot her for Rhonda Ron, mcdaniel Ron, <laughs> um, um because you know she, she she it's not like she was anything but a trump loyalist um who pretty much did everything uh she could to to um meet his demands but i but there, i guess there's no measure of loyalty that's ever enough but I, you know i mean i do think that it it just goes to show um you know how much the rnc has been reshaped um not just in trump's image but by this singular project that um you know that that really stands in the service of electing of electing trump and uh ensuring that he returns to the white house um you know, I think, you know, I, I think that it's unclear what the future of the RNC looks like in the in the long run. Um, like you said, this is kind of insider baseball, so maybe you won't get into all the kind of little specifics uh, here in terms of their day to day operations and how it would impact them. But um, look, I think we know this is a this is a committee that has pledged its loyalty to Trump time and again, and I, I can't imagine what it'll look like with you know, Trump's own daughter-in-law um, at the, at the, in a key, in a key position. Yeah. Right. Um, by the way, Ronna McDaniel, poor, she even gave up her name, right? Romney. She <laughs> yeah. Her, her name. And that wasn't enough loyalty for, for Donald Trump. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much to our panelists uh, for a great look at all the news of the week. Um, before we get into your favorite stories of the week on behalf of uh, the panel on all of us, I just want to express a, uh, a note of sadness for news this morning about the death of Alexei Navalny uh, in a Russian prison. It's like the Russian government finally succeeded in murdering him. They tried to kill him with a poison agent, nerve agent, four years ago. Then they slammed him he, when he came back to Russia in a Russian prison for 19 years. He died yesterday at the age of 47. Uh, a man of great courage 
who tried to lead the opposition or organize the opposition in Russia. And of course, he was totally crushed because there is no room for dissent at all in that country. Um, if you haven't seen the documentary Navalny, I encourage you to f somehow find a way to watch it and you'll see what a great man he really was and great loss it is. He is his death is to humanity. Uh, and to me, uh, Sabrina, it just underscored for me the urgency of getting your colleague, Evan Gershkovitz, out of a Russian prison. By the time all of our listeners hear today's podcasts, uh, he will have been in that prison for 324 days. Well, let's bring him home. Thank you, Bill. And with that, um, we always ask our panelists, uh, you're covering so much, so much is going on, as we just <laughs> proved by looking at the news of this week. But there's always one story that kind of catches your attention. It can be serious. It can be funny. Just makes you stop in your tracks and think about it. Um, Gabe, what brought, what came to your attention particularly this week? Favorite I'll go semi-lighthearted this week. Um, what caught my attention was a story in the New York Times that was a little bit delightful. Um, there had been, you know, as, as I think everyone <laughs> knows, the uh, Olympics will be happening in Paris this summer. Yes. Um, and for a while, there was a bit of a furor in uh, in France because the Olympics, uh, the Olympic Committee and the local authorities had mandated that the um, booksellers along the Seine would have to shut down during the Olympics for um, yes, basically for security purposes. Uh, Macron stepped in. They figured out a way to save the booksellers, which are sort of this wonderful traditional uh, piece of old Paris, and they will still be there along the banks of the Seine. It's a great story. Uh, it's not really like a beautiful story, but it's a nice one. Uh, booksellers on the Seine in Paris get an Olympic reprieve in the New York Times. I love that story. <laughs> the the bouquinist, they will still be there. Uh, exactly. At, uh, as uh, Macron said, they are very much a, an essential part of Paris. Paris will not be the same without them. I have bought many, many books from those bouquinist along the Seine uh, in Paris. Uh, and and Sabrina, what, uh, what, what stopped you in your tracks? Well, there was this kind of... Um funny Super Bowl ad that people may have noticed. Oh. With, uh, ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez and special appearances by Matt Damon and Tom Brady, the, you know, the Dun Kings, as they called themselves, uh, was obviously an ad for Dunkin' Donuts. And my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal did um, a report on how the apparel that they were wearing in this viral commercial has been selling out <laughs> uh, so quickly that Duncan had to quadruple its inventory only to sell out again. I mean, it's been selling out within minutes. Um, I mean, some of these items are retailing for like $40 or $60 a piece, uh, depending on if you want the uh, fuzzy pink bucket hat bill or if you want the, <laughs> the full tracksuit. But on eBay, the bidding wars for the tracksuit, they topped $300 on Thursday. So uh, it's just a little funny little item, I thought, on um, the, you know, kind of the the commercial side of, of this ad that ostensibly is about the, you know, donut and coffee chain. But I guess I guess the Dunkins has really become a little subculture of its own. I guess it proves that $7 million is worth it, right? <laughs> can, yeah. And people stop. do just, people love Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon. I mean, yeah, the the right. bushes have spoken, Bill. 
there, <laughs> there you go. Uh, and Kate, uh, of all the stories there, you were at Talking Points Memo. Any particular thing caught your attention? So my story of the week is almost more for the reaction than the story itself. Uh-huh. Uh, so for those of us who are left on Twitter, you know, it's like being the remnants um, of a, an obliterated civilization, you know, like fighting for fresh <laughs> water and living off dehydrated meats. So I love when a story kind of comes along that revives Twitter into what it once was and and uncorks the full gamut of human emotion. Um, and we got that this week with a story from The Cut where the financial columnist describes how she got scammed into giving the you know the quote unquote CIA a shoebox of fifty thousand dollars, and this story just really triggered that town square with like everyone talking about the same thing. Uh, you know, you had the kind of scoffers protesting it would never happen to them, and then the the self righteous pumping out the there but for the grace of God takes, and you know the, the people who are the backbone of Twitter who are tweeting. You know, you all went to grad school and you think you're immune to being scammed. Um, so the story itself was wildly exciting. And then you get the, that benefit of like 12 hours of every take you can imagine right there in the same place, which is kind of an echo of Twitter's halcyon days that are behind us now. Yeah. So Twitter still lives though, right? Despite. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> Despite X. And I have to tell you my favorite, of course, the biggest event of the week we haven't even talked about yet was Valentine's Day. Um, and it's a special day for um, most people, well, maybe for, for a lot of people, maybe most people, um, but not for everybody. Uh, and I certainly love the story out of Texas, San Antonio, Texas, where the San Antonio Zoo has come up with an alternative way of celebrating Valentine's. Uh, if you are not so happy on Valentine's, if you just had a pretty serious breakup and you're still pissed about that, uh, the San Antonio Zoo has an event where you can go and name a roach or a rat for your ex. And then you can feed that roach or rat to an animal in the zoo. Uh, uh, one woman uh, paid $25 to name a rat for her ex-boyfriend. Uh, and she was able to feed it to Komodo dragon and then send the video to our ex, which I thought was the ultimate way of getting back or getting even. By the way, the San Antonio Zoo said they raised $235,000 at this event on Valentine's Day. So clearly there are a lot of people out there (laughs) who don't feel good about Valentine's Day and wanted to get even and took advantage of it. I don't know whether other zoos in the country are going to take up that idea, but uh, (laughs) that was an unusual day of celebrating uh, Valentine's. All you need is love. There you go. Thanks so much again to today's great panel. Kate Riga, good to have you with us. We'll be glad to have you back again soon from Talking Points Memo. Gabe DiBenedetti, always good for you to join the panel. New York Magazine and Sabrina Siddiqui, one of our longtime roundtablers from the Wall Street Journal. And thanks to all of you for listening as well. We will be back on Tuesday. Very excited to welcome to the podcast on Tuesday, former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, uh, who of course was a member of the January 6th committee, now a political analyst on CNN. Adam Kinzinger coming up next, next Tuesday. Have a great weekend and join us with uh, Congressman Kinzinger on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>